Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from The Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. From the Milton Metz studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg. I'll be your host today. Recently, as part of our City Limits series, a Bloomington resident asked us to find out more about the history of racism in the state of Indiana and its effect on our lives today. Reporter Barbara Brozier looked into the question found out that the history of racism in Indiana is long and complicated. So today we're going to continue that discussion of the history of racism in Indiana and how it affects our present and our future. We'll be taking your questions. You can join the discussion by tweeting at Noon Edition or you can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You will be talking with uh, myself and four guests who we have in the studio today. James Madison is Professor Emeritus in Indiana University's History Department. Clarence Boone is Associate Director of Communities and Diversity Programs at the Indiana University Alumni Association. Jim Sims, Sims is a City Council Member at Large and a former Monroe County NAACP President. And Pamela Jackson is a Professor in IU's Department of Sociology. She's on the Bloomington Human Rights Commission as well. So we hope that you'll join us uh, on the program, and I'll give those numbers uh, again, 812-855-0811 and 1-877-285-9348. So I'm really happy that all of you are with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. One one correction. You yes, have me uh, identified as uh, director of diversity programs at the IU Alumni Association. That was my former uh, role. Okay. And what's uh, your current role? Current role is uh, bringing on radio program producer. Been doing that for fourteen years. And um, WFHB. At WFHB. Uh, <laughs> our radio station, Jim, the Voice Sims, has been working with me through that duration. Um, also, a former executive director of the Neil Marshall Alumni Club, club formed um, based on uh, the first African-American male and female to graduate from IU. And I'm an assistant pastor at Lighthouse Community Church, and my current role is I'm a realtor with Griffin Realty here wow. in town. So you, you've got all sorts of things I, going I, on. Clark. I have one hat I brought, but I'm, I'm wearing many others. All right. Yes. <laughs> Good. Well, well, we'll get to a few of those topics here in just a, just a few minutes. I want to start with uh, Jim Madison first. Uh, uh, so, Jim, you've done a lot of work on the history of Indiana. You're, I'd say you are the dean of historians in Indiana these days. And I wanted you to sort of frame this discussion for us about uh, the history of racism in our state. Well, I think everyone in this room, and I hope most of our listeners know how complicated and contentious and difficult this subject is for all of us. But... I personally believe that we need to pay more attention to it. Uh, We need to understand its historical roots because those roots are deep in the United States and in Indiana. Let me just – I could give the three-hour lecture, but I'll try to do the three-minute one, Bob. Uh, You can begin at the beginning in 1816 with Indiana's first constitution, a a document of pioneer democracy. It's superb in its democratic values with some very important exceptions, the first and most important exception – The vote was given to white men. No women and no black men could vote in what's often called the pioneer democratic period in Indiana history. And that that separation, that legal separation from the citizenry continues. Uh, It reaches a peak in some ways in in 1851 when Indiana passes a new constitution which has a notorious article, Article Number 13, which prohibits African-Americans from moving into the state of Indiana and settling in the state of Indiana. So a constitutional wall built around the state. 
And there's a lot of meaning in all of that that I think most of us can, can pick up. The struggle continues um, as whites attempt to keep African Americans in a secondary place legally with legal segregation and discrimination in all sorts of ways. There's gradual movement toward legal equality. That culminates in 1963 when Indiana passes a Civil Rights Act. And rather surprisingly, that 1963 Civil Rights Act, before the federal legislation of 1964 and 65, is very progressive. It puts There's a brief moment there in the early 60s when Indiana is kind of in the progressive side of this complicated issue of race. So... <laughs> Race, legal segregation, legal discrimination, and then all the cultural issues that go with that all across this state in restaurants and hotels and on the basketball floor and all sorts of other places that I'm sure our guests can also talk about. Mm -hmm. So um, all of you have, I'm sure, faced some discrimination over time. And and Jim Sims, I want to turn to you first. You you were on the program not too long ago, and you talked a little bit about growing up in Indianapolis. Um, Uh, Muncie, actually. Muncie, yes. yes. Okay. So can you, uh, you know, talk about uh, this issue? You know, Jim just sort of talked about the history of it. Has the the history uh, persisted? Um, yes, um, not near uh, at its foundation. Um, and I, I tend to focus now more on um, how do we move forward um, and, you know, with allies and, and people that can support the right thing to do. Um, we've talked. Previously, you know, how we went through um, growing up and, and the differences between Dr. Martin Luther King and um, 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 the other civil rights leaders at the time. Um, but then coming to Bloomington, and of course there was the Woodburn Hall mural controversy that, that we've all been through, it seems like every four years. Um, and then my wife and family and I, we chose to settle in Bloomington. Um, and of course, where are we at now? Three, three and a half percent of African American population. Um, so you have those challenges, um, in, in particular in a city that um, professes to be profoundly progressive uh, amongst cities in the state of Indiana. Um, but like I said earlier, in working with the majority population and building partnerships um, with other social justice, social equity um, groups, um, then you, you, and as Jim Madison said earlier, I mean, it it gets contentious. It makes you uncomfortable. Um, But I think if you're willing to sit down and discuss it, and then basically the bottom line is treat humans with dignity. And once you get to that point, um, and that's the stickler. Uh, you still have white privilege. You still have um, some so, some socially entwined and, and, and um, institutionalized practices. Um, you have certain biases that won't allow you to get past some of those. Um, and even many folks who profess to do that on the surface, and, and you build relationships. Um, in my experience. And, you know, and I won't mention names or anything. But then uh, once you get past what I call the honeymoon phase, then some of those things still come out where you're basically put in your place, for lack of a better term, or, or to be put there. And so half the struggle is like, no, not going to be in this can, and you're fighting and always to, to, to just be on level ground. And that's the difficulty part. Um, I do a lot in the city, and we've sit on the board of um, public safety, which is over police and fire people, um, NAACP. So we've worked hard in many other groups to um, become compatible, for lack of a better term, um, in our own community. And I think most of these changes, um, even though it's as, as important as state legislature and federal, most of this is ground roots um, um, issues and, and work things out and then try to build from where you are. Mm-hmm. So well, we're ta- that's, that's the challenge. Yeah, and we're talking about the whole state of Indiana, but I, but I do want to turn to both Clarence Boone and Pamela Jackson because you've, you've been on campus and had mm-hmm. a, lot of, uh, a lot of contact. And, you know, Bloomington's kind of a different place when it comes to Indiana. How different is it when it comes to, to race and racism? Sure. Bob, thanks for having me on. And um, as Dr. Madison was uh, sharing the history of Indiana, uh, I could not help but remember that uh, 
in Indiana, there are a number of sundown towns um, that existed for quite some time. And, and basically, for our listeners that don't know what a sundown town is, it's basically that blacks may come, do commerce or visit, but by the time the sun goes down, you need to be out of town. And so there were a number of these towns in Indiana. And then also the state was a haven for the Ku Klux Klan and that the, the governor of Indiana was a strong endorser, if not a member, car-carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan. And that, uh, those things leave an impression. And if that's in the DNA of your state, that, that lingers a long time. And it's reflected in policies, be it in housing, education, or, or be it in just um, getting involved in government or uh, just the right to uh, uh, send your kids where you want them to go to college. Uh, so, I mean, those things have a permanency unless they're addressed. Now, Bloomington, uh, I've always noticed, has always been this oasis uh, in southern Indiana for a lot of respects. I see reaction, but for, for me, I've got to speak for, for my impression. Um, my first involvement with Bloomington was being brought down here when I was around 10 years old to watch football games. Both my parents are graduates, uh, proud graduates of Indiana University. My father was a doctor, inspired by lar- in large part by Dr. Herman B. Wells. Uh, to pursue that career path in medicine. My mother's a school teacher and um, was a phenomenal school teacher, uh, taught me everything pretty much I need to know as far as my ABCs and writing, although I have horrible handwriting right now. Uh, The thing that I was impressed with about Bloomington was when I first arrived, um, it tended to be this oasis in that there were opportunities for people of color to do things. Now, there were vestiges of racism, uh, that I could discern and detect, but uh, for the most part, I was really impressed that this university did open its doors in the face of a lot of backlash under the leading of Herman B. Wells. Um, you know, that man's been an integral, integral part of our family as he influenced my dad uh, to pursue medicine. And he did phenomenal things for this institution. And one time, IU, and I won't belabor all this, but one time, IU was the creator for black college presidents for HBCUs. At one time, having 11, 11 sitting uh, black college presidents at uh, historically black colleges and universities in large part because Herman B. Wells made this an inviting place for people to come and get their higher education degrees when it was illegal in their own states to pursue those degrees. So IU was this sort of welcoming place. Is, was it perfect? No. Was Bloomington perfect? No. Uh, there were pioneers that I had the pl- pre- uh, pleasure of meeting uh, Miss uh, Elizabeth Bridgewaters, um, um, of course, Reverend Butler and others who were pioneers in their own right. Charlie Brown, who was the first African-American on the police force here and a host of others. But um, my impressions as a 10-year-old coming here was that, hey, this is a, not only a beautiful place, but a place that was somewhat welcoming. Mm-hmm. And I've been here maybe two and a half times as long as I've been in my hometown of Gary, Indiana. Okay. Pamela Jackson? Yes. Um, thank you for that uh, kind of that wonderful introduction of IU <laughs> by Clarence. But I think um, I'll probably answer this question uh, wearing the hat of a professor in sociology. And I teach in the group scholars program. I teach a class, Racism as a Social Problem, and I also teach um, at the graduate level. So I'll sort of answer this question from the perspective of some of the students who have brought stories, I think, to my attention. And so uh, one, of the, one of the stories in kind of the uh, conversation that seems to be a consistent one across uh, the different groups of students over the years, and I've been here for 18 years, is a question that I get from minority students when they are thinking about attending IU, either at the undergraduate level or at the graduate level. And that is, what about Martinsville? Even though it's the case, I believe, that most students do not know the full story about Martinsville, uh, nor do they know about how that case has been resolved or even the current situation in regards to uh, Mayor uh, Shannon Cole's efforts in Martinsville, students still know about Martinsville, in quotes. And so the students then, when they think about uh, Indiana, when they think about Indiana University, Bloomington, they're wanting to know, is it a safe place? Is it a place where uh, they can comfortably complete their coursework, uh, create new friendship networks, 
uh, expect to be um, um, gain access to resources that will facilitate their future endeavors. And so I would say that in regards to uh, the student experience at IU, one of the uh, things that I talk to the students about is the importance of community and identifying their communities um, of support that they either kind of bring with them, those groups of people that they might know who are part of their cohort coming in, or creating and reaching out to new communities that um, are available, whether that's their faith communities. We try to connect students with the different um, uh, religious organizations that are in town, um, the uh, black churches in particular for those students who identify as African-American. And so uh, these stories like the Martinsville story or the question about whether or not I should stop in Martinsville, should I spend my money in Martinsville, um, those are questions that come up uh, repeatedly where I think for students who are wrestling with this issue of race and racism in Indiana, they are really wanting to know what has been the community's response, not necessarily whether or not it's ever been resolved, has anyone ever been charged, you know, in that sense. They want to know, has the community ever gotten outraged about it? Um, has the community ever responded in a way that would suggest uh, that this could not, this will not happen again in some, in some sense? And so I think for me, this conversation about race um, in Indiana for the students, especially undergraduate students here at IU, uh, boils down to what type of community are we creating uh, for them? So can you, uh, just to, to clarify, so do you think that uh, you know, Martinsville is that town that everybody points to. There have been many efforts in the last, I'd say, 20 years at least, to for them to to sort of elevate their game. Do you think that that they've done enough, or that they've made progress? Let's put it that way. Uh, so, from what I understand, I, I do believe they've made some progress. I mean, I think it was a good start, and it's focused on healing the community there. Um, through the public apology um, that was made, um, the memorial that was put up, and that's, of course, for future generations, hopefully, to contemplate, and bringing together, um, even though it's a very small percentage, uh, the black and white residents there. So I think it was an excellent step in the right direction. Um, I just also uh, want to emphasize the importance of ongoing conversation and dialogue. The other hat um, that Clarence and I are wearing today is uh, as members of the Noah's Ark uh, group here in Bloomington, where we bring together groups of uh, white and black or African-American adults to talk about the issue of race, racism, faith, and healing. And we offer um, for those groups safe spaces uh, for whites who might feel apprehensive about talking about race and racism and for African-Americans who feel um, sort of exhausted about uh, being in a position to have to teach, if you will, um, white people about racism. And so Noah's Ark is one of many grounds roots efforts that's being made to sort of bring uh, diverse communities together to have dialogue about this topic. Okay. Well, I'll give our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 and 1-877-285-9348. You can also tweet us at Noon Edition. So I saw Jim's kind of shaking his head uh, no about Bloomington. I do remember having uh, the late, great uh, George Talaferro on the show, and George had lots of stories to tell about uh, some of his experiences. So, Jim, why were you uh, shaking your head? Well, it, it was just the notion of Bloomington being an, an oasis, um, and I disagree with that. Now, is it welcoming? Yes. Is there opportunity? Yes. Um, but I think across the state, and I do a little bit of traveling um, um, in, in my several roles, and I think some people have the wrong view of Bloomington being an oasis. Um, in particularly for um, black and brown and, and disenfranchised folks. Um, now, are we making progress? Um, am me, is me and my family successful here and other black families that I know? Um, yes. I'm not so sure Indiana can be called an oasis. Um, <laughs> and, um, so I, I, I understand the sentiment. I, I just... Not so sure if I agree with the um, interpretation or description. Um, 
uh, uh, it's about institutionalizing historical histories that we're fighting up against. Um, we just celebrated our 200th year, our bicentennial with the city of Bloomington. And, and I'm going to say this just to prove a point, not to be negative, I hope. Um, I am elected to the Bloomington City Council. In the 200-year history, I am just the second African-American to ever serve on this body. Paul Swain was the first. Paul Swain was the first. So that'll let you know about some of the, the progressive. Uh, we're not near as progressive as we all think we are, even though we are one of the most progressive communities in this state. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm happy and proud to live here. But I don't, at the same time, think if you don't acknowledge some of the, the aspects of why we're here, um, then it, it's a historical thing. And, and these perceptions are the tough part to deal with. Clarence? Um, and, and I respect uh, counsel. And, and that was not anything uh, against you. That's just, I respect everything cause, cause, you cause, do. Cause, so that was not against cause you. Because you knew where I was coming from. I do. Okay. I do. Um, I respect Councilman uh, Sims' position on that. Now, now let me clarify. When I use the term oasis, uh, and I reference that from the from the uh, the lenses of a ten year old young black boy coming down to Bloomington, Indiana, to watch football games, which uh, for for me, my siblings and family was somewhat a, a relief at the end of a long week. And uh, you mentioned George Talaferro. I knew him very well, even as a ten year old. And he told stories back then as well. But uh, nevertheless, coming here, to me, um, uh, I did not, my frame of reference, I did not see a lot of things. My parents took the time to take me around this campus to show me where they where they live, where they went to school, um, where they were restricted from going to, for, to going, and... And some of the things that they've enjoyed while in Bloomington. So Bloomington was sort of on my radar when I was an adolescent. Um, Now, when I use the phrase oasis, uh, I still was aware of southern Indiana and all that that can denote, you know, as far as uh, the Martinsville uh, thing with Carol uh, Jenkins and her untimely killing. Um, Which, by the way, uh, the gentleman who was somewhat accused um, or alleged to have committed that crime unfortunately died of cancer before he was taken to trial. But yet the city did take great strides to try to undo it. But unfortunately, they have carried this mantle for so long that that stain and and unfortunately stench of, of a lot of those things is hard to get rid of. But from my eyes, I saw Bloomington, especially in Danny University, as this grand place and a place where, you know, benefited my family. Now, I am not <coughs> ignorant or blind to a lot of the uh, things that are not perfect here. But uh, you sit as a councilman here, and if this city was not progressive, you would not be sitting here as a councilman. Uh, I own property here, and if the city was not progressive, I would not own property. My, my as, children as progressive I agree and my children are uh, thriving in, in their educational sit, uh, setting and if this city were um, not at least as progressive or more than other communities they would not be uh, thriving but is it perfect no absolutely not and are we reminded of that yes um, you know the farmers market situation we talked a little bit about that before we went live um, I'm still wanting, wanting to learn more information about it, and you're doing the research on that and good work and research on that. And, um, you know, the city may address this in some way, and I anticipate that they will. But um, at least the city responds. Some communities do not respond. Is it perfect again? No. But are, are we trying to get there? Yes. We're going to talk about the farmer's market situation and a whole lot of other topics in our last, second half of the program. But we're going to have to take a short break now. Uh, it goes very fast. We're, you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. 
Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, and we have four guests today as we talk about the history of racism in the state and and what we can do about it now. Uh, We have James Madison, Professor Emeritus in the Indiana University History Department. Clarence Boone is uh, with Bring It On. Radio is a radio producer, WFHB, and he has a whole lot of other things that that he's doing in the community, but he's been very active – with the university and with the community and, and uh, issues for many years. Jim Sims, a city council member at large and a for- the former Monroe County NAACP president. And Pamela Jackson, a professor in Indiana University's Department of Sociology and a member of the Bloomington Human Rights Commission. If you have questions or comments, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also tweet us at Noon Edition. We did have one person who sent us a, a question by tweet, and she says, Joan, Joan says, uh, how can we get information about history of racism in, the in, in Indiana into the public schools? She wanted to teach a lesson on the topic to her grandson's fourth grade class, and uh, no, I guess she was told no. She said the only lessons are, are on um, – escaped slaves those are the only lessons that are available so jim madison do well by chance i wrote a book for high school and middle school students (laughs) called hoosiers the story of indiana and uh, i'm proud to say that i co-authored that book with lee seindweiss another bloomington resident that uh, we have a lot of stories of race of african americans of latino and other people in this in this history book written for young readers. I'm sure the public library has a copy. I hope they have several copies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, Clarence? One other resource in our city, along with uh, Dr. Madison, is is a lady that I've had the pleasure of working with for uh, more than about 15 years, uh, Liz Mitchell, uh, who in her own right is a, uh, an ex, uh, extraordinary historian um, and can come and talk to any group and do a wonderful job. And if that individual leaves their contact information with your station, we'll make sure that they can get in touch with Liz. Okay. Can I put in a plug for Liz Mitchell? Yeah, sure. Too, because yes. uh, I've worked with her also, Clarence. She's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. She, she makes me feel old and tired. <laughs> uh, but one of the many things that Liz is doing now, and she's not here today on this panel because she's in West Baden working yeah. mm-hmm. on the restoration of an African-American church in West Baden from the early 20th century. It's a beautiful project. Mm -hmm. And that project stands as a testimony to what it was like in the old days and how we can, as Jim Sims says, move forward in the 21st century. And I'm sure you know about that, Jim. I I do. Um, That's one of the projects we have at Second Baptist Church in the Southeastern District. Um, um, And Liz is phenomenal with a capital P. But I am also a member of the Indiana Coalition for Public Education um, and a strong supporter of public education. And one of the problems with teaching that in the schools comes from the state education folks and their curriculum-driven agendas. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a director of curriculum in MCCSC, but a lot of that is mainly controlled by state. So there is a limitation of what will be allowed into the, the core curriculum mm-hmm. um, in uh, Indiana public school systems. So that's one of the answers to, to what the caller called in about. And I, and I just want to add also sure. um, sort of the, uh, the back way into this as well, besides the curriculum actually, is uh, teachers often invite uh, yes. community members into their classrooms. And so I've spoken, for example, about black history to my daughter's elementary class and other teachers have invited me into their classrooms to speak about history, uh, the history of Indiana. And so there are other ways that uh, students can learn about yes. the history of Indiana and parents can become more involved in that way and just partner with teachers to bring additional information to the attention of their students. Okay. Um, I want to ask, uh, it's kind of dangerous asking uh, Jim, a historian, about something that, you know, maybe in the future, but um, it seems like we, we've come at a time now where, you know, we, we had the, the election of the first African-American president of the United States, Barack Obama, and now 
after he's left office, it seems like we've taken some steps backward. And I guess I want to get your reaction and the rest of the panelists' reaction to, you know, are we are we in a sort of a new phase of, of racism or – I'm, I'm in disbelief, Bob, about how far we've moved backwards in a few years. Um, let, me, let me stay away from the national scene because that's too depressing for me to talk about in public. In Indiana, Indiana is no longer an oasis if it ever was. I mentioned the 1963 civil rights legislation where Indiana had some gestures toward progressivism on issues of race. I think in recent years we've actually moved backwards. Maybe we've made some improvement in one sense, except other places have moved forward much more, much better than we have in Indiana. All sorts of evidence for that. The failure to pass the anti-hate bill this past session of the General Assembly. The composition of Indiana's General Assembly. There are very few white faces in that body very few black faces in that body. Uh, they're all old white men. And speak, man, and speaking as an old white man uh, with white privilege, there are things I don't understand. Uh, and and uh, we need in that General Assembly people to represent the state of Indiana who really do represent the state of Indiana and understand where we are in the 21st century. I think our General Assembly is doing a horrible job of representing us. I want to let Jim Sims answer because he's going to have to go here in a few minutes, but I want to give you the next crack. Well, I I appreciate Jim saying that. And one of the things that came to mind uh, as far as progress, um, over the years, one of the things, and this phrase was coined by Representative um, Crawford, um, African-American state legislator. And and one of the things he would always say is, we want a seat at the table. And and that was like like a mantra for a while. We want a seat at the table. We have progressed past that. And one of the things that I say is not only do we want a seat at the table, we want the power that comes with that seat. Mm -hmm. And that means the folks that have the power, the folks that have the privilege, must be willing to cede some of that. And that's the problem, um, a long-term problem. Now, individually, there are some folks, I think, and and I work with a lot of groups, um, Bob, as you know, and as many Mm -hmm. others know, and I think we have made progress. It is tough to get past the institutionalizing the historical racist practices that has been practiced in this state um, since its inception. And, and that Martinsville is the same thing. Um, we used to go there and have dinner. There was a black gentleman that, that celebrated and helped take care of little boys. Um, and I'm sorry, his name Merritt. escaped. Yeah, Mr. Merritt. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd go to celebrate that um, on a more somber note, my daughter had cancer, and where she chooses to get her treatments is at the the Morgan County Cancer Center. And those folks are very inviting. We go to downtown Martinsville for lunch and that sort of thing. Um, I understand that the color of green money and tourism carries way more weight than um, black skin, but uh, we haven't had any problems mm-hmm. recently. I came here in 1975. We did not stop in Martinsville when I went back to Muncie or going to Indianapolis. By the same token that many of us don't talk about, we didn't stop in Petersburg or Washington when I went to Evansville to go to my wife's hometown either. But we don't really talk about that as much as we do up front. So those are the perceptions and and the historical um, situations that I think we're still fighting against today. Thanks very much, Tim. Thank you. I want to ask both uh, Clarence and Pamela if they have comments on that? Are we taking steps backward? I agree with uh, Dr. Madison that um, commenting on the national scene would take a five-hour show, um, but I'll suffice to say that we have taken leaps backwards, um, and dog whistles have been blown, and signals have been sent, uh, reversals have been made, and, and my concern is will we be able to regain lost ground and go forward after uh, this nightmare, well, this after this uh, current state of affairs is over, um, you know, what will this all look like? Has, has damage been done to the extent where it can't be re- re- restored? I'm an optimist, and I think it can. And, but I and also think it, it, it starts with every one of us looking inside. I mean, it's, you know, let's, let's get sort of philosophical here. Um, I read somewhere where, where someone stated to heal such deep systemic and ongoing wounds requires accountability, justice, and repair. And it starts within all of us, and we have to take a look in the mirror. 
and I have to decide it stops now and it starts with me. And I think that's the only way that we can go forward because the tone has been set nationally and, unfortunately, internationally um, by by an individual who, who sets the tone for our nation, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Pamela? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm a sociologist, so let me start with that. I'm not so sure that um, – that we've gone backwards as much as what I see as uh, a simple reveal. So I am reminded of Dr. King's letter, his uh, that Birmingham letter, where he describes for the audience, the reader, a group of people who were ambivalent um, about race relations. And he talked about the danger of that group of people, the fact that they are um, sort of, uh, they are the problem because they are not outraged enough about racism. And so what I am imagining is happening is that there's, been a simple reveal of those individuals who have never necessarily taken a strong stand one way or another, but have in this hour felt empowered to take a different kind of stand. So I I imagine that there are simply people who have been closet racist and they now have a platform and um, an opportunity to express those feelings. So I'm not so sure we've gone backwards as much as I feel that those individuals um, and their true intentions have simply been revealed. I'm going to go to the phone in a minute, but just just so I can sort of weigh in here, it seems as if uh, the election of, of President Obama in some ways um, opened up this idea to some people, like you're talking about, it revealed their belief that, oh, no, I might – I might start losing some of my privilege or losing what I have. Is that? It's very easy to see that proven, Bob. Just mm-hmm. just Google it, and it's mm-hmm. all over the web. The stuff about Obama from his election, before his election, to the present day is simply outrageous, starting with the birther stuff, mm-hmm. but way beyond that. And Michelle Obama, too. And we know who was, who was implicated and involved deeply with the birther. Yes. Our current sitting president. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, we're going to go to the phones. We have John on the line. John? No? So I guess he's just uh, sent us a question about a problem with police noncompliance with reporting um, bias bias crimes. Are you familiar with? We have, um, in in my other role as producer, we're bringing on, we have brought uh, Bloomington's police chief on. We have brought state police representatives on to talk about everything from how they conduct safe stops of individuals um, to when there were national when national news was made on um, questionable police action shootings and then ultimately decisions made by grand juries um, now now the notion of recording uh, stats yes that's important that's wildly important and I would hope that it's fairly done uh, because sometimes policy is based on on what the stats reveal, but um, uh, I, I think having the conversations with individuals and not being afraid to challenge individuals or shy away from from um, sensitive, if not controversial, topic topics is the way to go. I, I think uh, if if we create this environment where we can listen to one another and then share our views in sort of a controlled setting. And sometimes these are very passionate exchanges, but I believe that we can do the hard work of digging deep and um, uh, admitting when we're deficient in a lot of areas and we need to move forward. But to this point of um, uh, recording statistics on on just um, uh, the type of crimes, uh, the individuals where crimes are being committed against, uh, there are some notions that need to be dispelled. It's not that it's primarily, primarily black people committing crime in, in all races. Um, there's crime against each other in all races, and it's not the predominant thing that blacks are committing crime against everyone. If uh, that's, that's just not true. And it's borne out through, st- through statistics as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
All right. So if you have a question or a comment, you want to get on the air with us today, 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also uh, tweet us at Noon Edition. Jim? Yeah, thanks, Bob. I uh, I want to go back to Pam's wonderful comment about reveal, and I think that's a very important insight. And I'd like to take it to a, in a different direction that, uh, yes, I think I agree with her that our current environment has revealed uh, a deeper racism um, than, than many white folks especially believed existed in our country and in our state. I... I try also to be an optimist like Clarence, to believe that that arc is bending toward justice. I think it's bending awfully slowly. But I hope that the revelation of the depth of racism in our country will cause those white folks who have not been paying much attention and some who even believe that we live in a so-called post-racial society, which is the biggest crock that's been trying to sell in recent years, that, that more white folks, because of what's being displayed around our country, will start to pay more attention and start to step up and start to do the right thing on an individual basis, as Clarence said. That would be the hopeful outcome of the situation we're in today. Mm-hmm. Uh, two more issues I want to bring up. One, one is, since we, as we said we were going to bring it up, is the farmer's market issue. And this issue has to do with one of the vendors who has ties to um, a, a white supremacist group. And there's some belief that they shouldn't be allowed to be a vendor at the local farmer's market. And I think the vendor has said, well, I don't espouse any of these views at the farmer's market. I should be allowed to sell, you know, based on the fact that I have good products. So what do you all think about that? Jim? Well, in some ways, I'm an old-fashioned liberal and believe in freedom of speech and all the other freedoms guaranteed by our Constitution, essential to our democracy. I would hope that if the facts of the case are true, and I believe they are, I'm not certain, but I believe they are, that the good folks of Bloomington would simply not patronize that vendor and maybe even go a step further and and fly a few flags and a few few signs. But um, beyond that, maybe it's necessary to do something else. But I'd like to hear the argument for that. Mm -hmm. Clarence? Um, I in reading about it, um, if, if an individual has made the decision to steep themselves in an ideology and a belief system, and they want to conveniently, ex, you know, extract themselves when convenient from that to say, "Oh, I I've not espoused anything. I've not said anything." Unfortunately, no. It's 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 unfortunate, but you have made a decision. And you must carry what it is that you've steeped yourself in. Um, you know, there's there's evidence, I guess, on the internet of some things that have been expressed. Um, uh, and no, you may not have brought a SWAT sticker to the um, to the uh, farmers market, but um, you are associated. You know, is it guilt by association, or you know, you're practicing, you're you're doing certain things? Well, you have to be accountable. Own up to it. Um, <clears throat> and unfortunately, if this is the, the case, then. I don't think there's a place for it. I mean, we've seen signs in, in our yard saying no hate, no no violence, not in our town. Um, it's time to stand up. It's, you know, before I came to, to IU in 77, uh, the year prior, the KKK marched at, uh, I believe, Briscoe Quadrangle. I mean, you know, no, in Foster Quad at Gresham Hall. They had a rally. And since that time, there have been other times when the KKK has um, requested um, uh, permission to march and espouse their views, I say stand up to that. Mm-hmm. I say stand up to that. There was a time when in Marion, uh, that infamous picture where, where three individuals are hanging from a tree. Um, and, and, and the picnics and, and the celebration that ensued afterwards, uh, there, was someone, there was a time for someone to stand up and say no. And now is the time for us to stand up and say no. I don't want to repeat of that. Right. Pamela? Um, I think uh I think this is a, a a good example. I think we should we should ask ourselves why is it that a person would find it acceptable to promote hate on the internet on one hand and operate as a vendor in a public space on the other hand. And so some people would argue that it's because there's little accountability. Um 
by those in charge of these activities, and there's uh, even less outrage by the community. Um, so in other words, if there's no public statement or policy uh, regarding who is an acceptable vendor, then anyone will be able to take advantage of the unknowing members of the community. Um, I think this is, again, sort of this chance or an opportunity for the leaders in the community, however they are designated, to make a decision as to whether or not Bloomington wants to be that progressive oasis, that forward-thinking city um, that would like the label of being the least racist city. And this is an opportunity to sort of Mm -hmm. put some mechanisms or perhaps some policies in place or even some statements uh, in place that will uh, promote that idea. As early as, I, as when I introduced myself, I said I was an assistant pastor at a church, and so uh, I'm, I'm expressing that I'm a man of faith. Uh, I staunchly believe that there should be no place for um, someone who's a closeted white supremacist, just as the group from Campbellsburg, Indiana, to come up here and go to People's Park and to call women all types of derogatory things, call people all types a type of derogatory themes in the name of trying to win souls for Christ. I, I, you don't represent me. There's no place for you. And so it's time for people to stand up and say so. Okay. Um, I wanted to, uh, two other things I wanted to talk about. I said there were two. Now there are, I guess there were three. Jim, we've talked a lot about Martinsville today. And I know in, in your research, we talked about sundown towns. There was a, we had an author here a couple years ago, that, or probably five years ago, that had a book about sundown towns. So, I mean, Martinsville, we've talked about it a lot, and we've talked about how there's been a lot of progress, but that's not, I mean, it wasn't an accept, or a, an exception to small town Indiana, was it? No, it wasn't. And you grew up in a small town, I Bob, I know. And uh, there are lots of towns like Martinsville across this state, uh, past and present. And uh, in some ways, Martinsville gets an unfair rap, though Martinsville brought it a lot on themselves, not just with that murder in 1968, but with other events, and I, uh, Bloomington, Martinsville, uh, athletic basketball game mm-hmm. uh, and other uh, statement by the assistant chief of police, which was outrageous a few years ago. So they, they keep shooting themselves in the foot. And yet good people in Martinsville are trying very hard, as we already said, I think, with the memorial and in other ways to to move into the 21st century. There are other towns. There are lots of towns in Indiana, small towns especially, um, which are all white and which are not sunset towns anymore, but uh, they're not too far removed from that, I'm afraid. There are neighborhoods even on the north side of Indianapolis where I've had African-American and Mexican-American students tell me they feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, this is not just Martinsville. The other thing is that, that I think we need to be thoughtful about what distracts us and keep our eye on the prize, as they say. What are the real issues here? And the real issues are are jobs and housing and education um, and and others that we could talk about. And and we we get too easily distracted. We get distracted by the white power movement, you know, the crazy guys talking about 100% Aryan blood. We have one in Paoli, Indiana, who was in the spotlight for a while. These things are important. They're outrageous. But they distract us from the fundamental issues of, of racial inequality and injustice. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask uh, Pamela Jackson, you're a professor at IU in the Department of Sociology. And is there um, some hope uh, that the, the younger generation is going to be better than the, the sort of male white power structure that we've talked about in the Indiana General Assembly in Congress to, to a certain extent. Yeah, um, and, and that is actually where I think all the energy is um, right now. And so we sort of see that in politics. But, and, uh, and someone used the phrase, um, I think uh, James used the phrase of uh, certain people need to wake up. And so you have this movement called Woke, and we actually have a club here on campus called Woke. And the students, um, you know, sort of as representatives of uh, kind of the millennials and millennials past, the generation Xers and kind of all the young people that come after them, are much more aware of uh, the histories uh, that are out there, kind of the, the multiple 
uh, vantage points and stories uh, and information about um, uh, society and and sort of uh, politics and uh, policies and 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 they're much more aware and they're much more open to understanding the complexities uh, that uh, that James uh, described and so I that's where my hope is my hope is in this younger generation that's much more open uh, much more aware uh, not as cynical um, but very focused on the fact that uh, there's a lot of work to be done and there's some work that can be done more immediately than than other types of work and so the students who especially uh, you know I'll kind of put that plug in for that liberal arts education and so the students who are availing themselves to uh, the most diverse uh, sets of knowledge uh, across uh, kind of the social sciences and understanding the connections between history and uh, political science and sociology. Um, these students, along with, you know, kind of other students as well, um, are, I think, trying to make a dent. Uh, they are trying to uh, position themselves for positions of power in politics and in their fields, whether it's in medicine and and understanding the role of implicit bias in medicine and understanding the role of implicit bias in the criminal justice system. And so students are sort of taking, amazingly, all of the noise and all of the information. They're sifting through it, and they are trying to see themselves as those game changers. We're out of time. Thank you very much for these uh, for the insightful conversation today. I want to thank our guests, James Madison, Clarence Boone, Jim Sims, and Pamela Jackson for being here with us today. For our producer, Benta Boutier, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at Smithville.com. And from The Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.